You remember when one or both of your parents gave you the talk? How awful that was? And now as a parent, you need to give the talk to your kids? And today, things are way more complicated. It's not just sex we need to talk about, but gender, sexuality, identity, consent, and a lot more. Well, parents, we got your back. In this episode, we're talking with a professor of gender and sexuality, Jenna Curtis, PhD. It is an amazing episode where we talk about everything from how to have the talk to when it's okay to start dating uh, to why it's so damn important to talk openly with our kids about gender, sexuality, and identity. A quick note, Dr. Curtis's sound was not great in this episode, but the energy she brings and the amazing wisdom she shares is too important to toss. So we're going with it. But I promise if you stick with it, you're going to be super happy you did. There is a roadmap. And if I can't tell you, take the highway or take the country roads. I can tell you, you need to get to a place where your child feels loved and accepted for who they are. Listening to your child, allowing your child to express themselves as their gender identity is life-saving. We are so thrilled to present this episode with Dr. Jenna Curtis. She holds a doctorate in education from Columbia University and is a professor of gender and sexuality at SUNY Cortland. She started her adult life as a community AIDS educator in 1987, when she was just out of high school. She ended up delivering hundreds of HIV AIDS presentation programs and workshops to high school kids, college students, and community audiences, all before finishing her undergraduate degree. So what would cause a kid just out of high school in rural upstate New York to travel around the world educating people on AIDS in 1987? Well, You're going to need to listen to find out. Enjoy this awesome episode with Dr. Jenna Curtis. So we can just dive right in. Um, So the first thing we we were going to talk about was like how, how far back we go. And so we started to touch on this. So it's been, yeah, 15, almost 16 years since we've seen Jenna. Because we were in grad school together and, and uh, she was completing a doctoral degree and I was completing a master's degree and we worked together in family housing. And I remember being the, the one without kids. And I remember that kind of being a little bit of a thing. It's like, you know, and I remember struggling and be like, but I have a family, but I know it's not the same thing. I mean, not one of those people who, who assumes that I know what it's like, but I remember you being our first parenting mentors. Like we, yeah, I remember it, like watching like how soaking you guys it up. Parented, there was the Apple yeah. thing. I don't know if you remember, but you told me the story about apples and how you would keep apples in the in the fridge and you tell the kids they can't have them because they're treats oh yeah <laughs> remember, remember that like, yeah like oh i write i totally down. use that you know <laughs> i like stored that away in a file and i was like that is really good that's good <laughs> and i've been using it ever since <laughs> now Maisie will eat like two flats of strawberries be like i don't know <laughs> i don't know if you should is that <laughs> 
So did you, did you accept the position at Cortland, like right after grad school? That was right the- out of grad school. As, as it happens in grad school, my dissertation advisor was like, Jenna, you should interview at Cortland because that's where he went. And I was like, mm. yeah, sure. Cause I'm going to California where it's warm. You're right. Uh, but he was, he was my advisor. So I interviewed at Cortland and I fell in love with it. I went from, awesome. I hope they don't make me an offer and I have to deal with that too. Please let them make me an offer. Please let them make me Yeah. Mm. And I've been here ever since. Oh, that's awesome. All right. So before we get into your professional work, I just want to rewind to like the personal stuff. And so when did you first know that you wanted to be a mom? Like, was there a moment where you're like, oh, dang. No, no. I actually talk about this when I teach about gender and sort of the way we, I never made a decision to be a parent. Right. I, from my earliest memories, I grew up in this huge Irish Catholic family where there were aunts and uncles and cousins everywhere where any adult could grab you by the scruff of your neck and say, straighten up. Right. Like that was my yeah. family. Yeah. And everybody said to me my entire childhood, well, when you have children or well, when you know, you might not like this now or you might think, that, but when you have children, you will understand. And it was just part of the but nobody, it, it was like when you become an adult, it was just one of those things that you did. So I never, and I don't regret having children, but now I have students and, and I work with young adults who are really thinking about like, do they want to have families? And I, and I work with people. Oh, Jenna. So this is great. So you, you experienced part of what I think of as the old way of parenting, which is it's just part of life. It's like you grow up, you have kids, you retire and you die. And after you retire, you get to do what you want. But the having kids and supporting your family is work. So was there a moment when, as a parent, you realized like, this is, this is something more like this is like, this is a life project. Like this is part of some, you know, deeper, they're like, there's deeper meaning here in my relationship with my kids. And uh, did it ever hit like that? Yeah, absolutely. So, so, and and it's interesting because now both of my children are adults and with their people and talking about starting their own families, you know, not maybe right now, but in the foreseeable, you know, within a five-year plan, that's something that's certainly going to come up. And, and, and Tori, my oldest asked um, before, before the wedding, um, you know, what about kids? And I said, here's the thing about kids. Like I, I get, and I had this conversation, like, I don't remember ever deciding I'm going to be a mom as opposed to right. not be the mom. Right. 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 Um, like anything else. It was just always, part of my identity of who I would be the same way that I would be an adult, you know, something right, I would grow up right. and I would grow up to be a mom because that's what women did. Um, but within that, I also very much in my family was instilled, like that was the best thing that you could do. Like, you know, very much the Hillary Clinton, no matter what other great things you do with your life, if you don't do a great job raising your kids, like you have not nailed it. Mm. It, it is the most important, most crucial work you're going to do. Um, and, and so when I was talking to Tori about this, I said, you know, and the thing about that is, and it's right, like the happiest, best things that have ever happened in my life. Almost all of them are tied to my kids, right? Like my, yeah. my proudest moments, yeah. best, the, the things that I reflect on. Um, and some of my hardest too, like hands down. Oh, yeah. Thing at work, right? Is nothing compared to 
your kid is in trouble and you can't help. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh yes. To Tori, I said, you know, I can't imagine my life being as happy as it is if I hadn't had kids. And for as long as you have children, you are, it's harder to be happier than your saddest kid. Mm. You're the most troubled kid. So it's sort of this incredible leap of faith to, you know, trust in this process that you see from everyone around you does not always end well and often makes parents really miserable. But brings such incredible joy. I guess that's what makes it, makes parenting for me at least, this almost spiritual life project because it's not, you know, it's not like a just totally enjoyable hobby. Like I like to surf or bike, you know, and it's like, no, 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 this is something different. Like this is for, for me, it, it, yeah. I mean, it's as close to like a spiritual project as possible because it, it will reveal every, you know, uh, unprocessed wound from childhood that I have every issue, every hang up. And then of course, as you alluded to all the joy and the pain that just goes with, you know, seeing your kids struggle or, you know, go through stuff that you wish they didn't have to. So, Jenna, I'm interested because getting to know you as parent, like as parents, so you and Todd, we we met your parents. I didn't know you before. And you're such incredible examples to us. And we're soaking it up from you. Like this is, this has been your life's work. And this is something that you you went into because it's a part of a life trajectory that was that was uh, passed on to you. And so, at what point did you, or was there a point when you said, "Hey, this is something that I'm not just sort of like floating through and biding my time until they're 18"? Was there a point for you where you started to really lean into that because you're really good at it? And so, I'd love to know like where that kind of came to or how that came together for you. So this is this is gonna sound odd, but one of the things that was really pivotal and, and really helpful in my parenting is my brother got sick when I was a teenager. Um, and so Todd, who was my high school boyfriend and I, um, had lots of conversations about that. He had AIDS back when AIDS was pretty immediately fatal. Right. Um, and so for my entire relationship with Todd, in the beginning, I had a critically ill well, we would say terminally ill brother and family stuff was super important and super intense and super accelerated. Cause we had that thing that lots of families with diagnoses have of you've got to get it all in. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yep. And so, so Todd and I were high school sweethearts who got married at 22 mm-hmm. because my brother had just been diagnosed with AIDS and they said he'd only lived for a year or two. And I went to him and I said, I love you. And we're going to get married at some point. But if we don't get married before my brother dies, I'm going to be too sad to get married. So we need to do it now. Mm. Right. And then kids was the same thing. Like, let's have kids. But because of that, and I think maybe because of who I am, because I knew I was put, I was fast tracking it. Right. It was also really important to me to sit down and sort of talk to him about what would that look like? We're going to get married anyway, but if we get married soon, how does that change our relationship from what it is now? Right. And we're going to have kids. Like we always knew we were going to have kids, but if we have kids now, like what does that mean for work? And what does it mean for this? And, and so we had these really intentional conversations, I think in part because I was really aware of the fact that we were incredibly young and making it up while we were going along. Mm. Yeah. And I didn't want to half ass it. Like I didn't know I didn't know what I was doing and I knew that. Wow. So, 
So, so we got to have these conversations about like, you know, what do you think about spanking? Like, I don't think we should ever hit our kids. Do you like, you know, what do you think about religion? What do you, because you brought this intentionality into it. Yeah. And like really building the boat as you're sailing across the ocean. (laughs) (laughs) We've got three months to decide what a good marriage looks like. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. Oh my God. I, yeah, that, that is, that is why I feel like um, you have so much wisdom, even, you know, back, back then we would, you know, watch you guys and it really felt intentional. Like you guys were not half-assing it and that these decisions were intentional. I mean, yeah, they were like done kind of on the, fly um and kind of quickly but it was intentional i love that yeah yeah the Uh, other thing i wanted to reflect on too speaking of your brother is and i'd love to talk a bit more about this because it's something that has just there's been continued resonance for me in reflection looking back you in sharing with us along the way you, I mean, you brought us to your home. I mean, you, you brought us, you know, yeah. to you, you brought us into your, into your lives and you shared with us. And then we end up years later with a son diagnosed with a brain tumor. And there's something there that I don't know how to describe it, but it, I felt, I like, I felt you there because you introduced us in a way to this world that we just ended up in. And it's been very powerful for me. And you as a sibling, I see in my daughter, you know, and a lot of that journey, I feel like you gave us, uh, I don't know, you gave us some sort of advanced comfort in, in, in some way of just being able to be with you. And so you see she's, she's surviving and thriving and making this give and making something out of this. This is just incredibly inspiring I think it's been, for me, it's been a, a huge part of my inspiration, knowing that it's possible. Oh, wow. I, I notice I'm feeling choked up. I, I, I teach students how to talk about things like this. And I say, when you feel like you're everyone, just own it. Um, yeah, I think, um, again, one of, one of the gifts that we had being one of the early AIDS families um, and one of the gifts that I got getting married so early was the sense of there wasn't a right way to do it. There wasn't a handbook. You, you make it up as you go along because there isn't anything else to do. And I see so much of that in the work that you and Justin have done with Max Love of sort of like, there has to be a path and we don't know what it is, but we know that there must be one. And if we have to build it and sometimes veer the wrong way occasionally can get there, we will do it. Build a ship as we sail. It's the same thing, right? Yeah, I I think the commonalities are like this the like the only rules that we know we have to follow are love and authenticity. If we can just follow these (laughs) these these two rules, we'll get somewhere. Stay here and hurt. We have to do something with this. Like just stay here and doing nothing isn't an option. So even though we aren't sure what the the good thing is we're going to try with love and authenticity. The thing yes. that's in our moment. Mm. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's like, uh, I mean, what I, what I notice in this and what's coming up for me in this conversation is that we oftentimes, many of us are unaware that the pursuit of the perfect life is something that we've just consented to by default, because the expectation is that you do this, right. And do the things perfectly and build a perfect, happy life. And when you go through what your family's been through, 
when you go through what we've been through in our whole community of families, that whole notion of perfect life is destroyed. And out of that, you, you do have a choice. You can, um, I, I think, um, there, there's grief that goes along with that for everybody. Um, and there's something that it can be. And I've seen a lot of families in more of a state of disempowerment from that. Like, you know, it is completely shattering for us. We took it as an opportunity to build at that point. And it's like, well, that's out the window. Right. And now we're free in a sense, like we're free to be, to do us, to be us and to figure out what our purpose is and what we really feel like we're, we're going to be good at. And so, and you know, we can make some good things happen in the world. What's it going to be? And it was, in a sense, liberating. And it's hard to say that to people who have been through something like this or a diagnosis like this, because, you know, you know what I'm saying. I'm not trying to say that, you know, I'm grateful for my son's cancer diagnosis. That's not the point. That's not what I'm saying. (laughs) Thank goodness my brother died of AIDS because I never would have gone to grad school without that. Right, Mm. right. Yeah, yeah. And... I, and, and that's why the, the, the language that works for me mostly, except when it doesn't, because right, sometimes we just <laughs> right, um, right. Like sometimes, and that's and that's part of it again of being willing to get it wrong because what is right is a moving, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, right. Like one of the gifts that this gave me, like so you can go on a real and, and, and Todd does this. One of my Todd, my husband, um, who, who is still my favorite person. In the Oh, um, after all these years, high school sweethearts. Give him our love. <laughs> yes. um, Todd, Todd does a whole bunch of international travel and often with people who haven't done it. And he says, you know, from the time you leave your house with your bag until you get home, it's an adventure. Sometimes yes. the adventure sucks and sometimes the adventure is awesome, but it's right. But it's an adventure. <laughs> that sort of mindset of, you know, we're always learning and, and sometimes we're not getting it right. And that's not, but that's not the point. You know, it, it can be difficult and it can be not what you anticipated and still be fabulous. Or it can absolutely suck. You know, some of the things, the, some of the trips that I have learned the most on have been the ones that were absolutely terrible from a accomplishing my goals perspective. Right. Mm. Right. Like yeah. I, the first time I did a research trip in India, I remember, like, I don't remember the time I decided I became a mom. I remember the time promising my higher power that if it got me out of India, I would never return again. Right. But I remember (laughs) my first research trip broke me. It sucked. I did everything wrong. I didn't go back for four years. Wow. But I learned so much from that trip. And the reason it broke me is because I was doing everything wrong. Oh my gosh. So Jenna, when you said trip at first, I was like, Oh, Jenna's going to talk about psychedelic trips now. All right, cool. As I, um, but it's funny because I do, I, I do follow the research. So I'll, you know, there's now like real clinical trials on psychedelic therapy. And so I follow this. Um, I'm super interested in, in it. And the researchers, I've heard this several times because they're asked on, on news shows, like, well, what about the bad trips? I mean, you know, and they say, well, actually, people often will get the most healing and most benefit from what we think of as a bad trip. And so this, this like goes in just exactly with, with what you're saying. Right? Sometimes life gives you what you need instead of what you want. Mm. Yeah. And, Beautifully said. Yeah. And I, again, sometimes, right. Because sometimes people say that to me and I'm just like, 
<laughs> you do not need this flat tire this morning. Right, hungry. right. Well, yes, there's a difference between someone else saying that to you and you saying it to yourself, right? I mean, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I had, I mean, I had the experience of um, a very, for me, it was a very difficult loss of a baby at 20 weeks. She had trisomy 18. It was very difficult. And I definitely had people in my life who were like, you'll, you'll see. <laughs> it's for the best. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'll see. Or it was part of a plan or something. Yeah, Whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. All right, so, Jenna, you <laughs> alluded to this um, when you said that, you know, had your brother not passed, you probably wouldn't have gone to grad school. And so this is a part of like your professional life really goes back to that. So can you tell us a little bit about how you even got into to researching and teaching gender and sexuality? Sure. Um, so, so the first thing I think that's super important to, to note, because this is, um, I think, for parents to help them think about how to do this and how to have these conversations um, with children and think about these, these topics with regard to children, my parents botched the sex talk. And I was destined to be a sex professor. So it was a real mismatch. I grew up in Irish Catholic family. Um, and when I was seven, my dad caught me reading his playboys because again, from, the, from my earliest memories, like how would you not want to look at pictures of naked people? Like that's obviously fascinating. Right. I stand, right. I stand by that as a 51 and a half year old. Like it just makes sense. Um, and so in this very strict Catholic family that I had, nobody had, had the resources or the like, skills to sit down and have a conversation with me about why this is inappropriate or why it's okay for adults, but not for seven-year-olds or why children shouldn't go into their parents' bedroom without permission. Like there's so many ways that conversation could have happened, except my, my parents just didn't have those skills. So what they did instead is they got a whole bunch of books about puberty and sexuality and they gave them to their seven-year-old. <laughs> uh, yeah, Jenna, just go get a PhD in this so then we don't have to have this discussion. <laughs> that, is, that is exactly what happened. And, and, and so one of the things I talk about when I talk to parents about how you teach kids about sex is that, you know, it's sort of like teaching kids about smoking. There's what you say and there's what you do, right? Before you have a conversation with your kids about their tobacco use, they have learned a thousand mm. lessons about it from watching uncles, people on the subway, right? Like they're, it's not that if you don't talk to them, they're not learning. Yeah. <laughs> right. 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 And it's not that if you say don't ever smoke, but you have two packs a day, you know, and, and a pack in the glove compartment and one stashed everywhere that, you know, you're not teaching them two separate sets of messages. Right. Mm. Right. But my parents didn't, so in terms of the talk, they did everything exactly wrong, mm. right? They, they froze. They, and the thing that they taught me was, is that sex is so fascinating and horrifying both that you can't talk to people. You know about it. You can only read about it in books. Wow. I became a great reader, right? Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. I learned to read everything. But at the same time, they sent that message my parents are in their seventies and they're still really in love with each other. Mm. Oh. And they, they, 
they really care about each other and they're each other's best friends. And they taught us that no matter what we did, we were always going to be loved. Mm. And they taught us that we owned our own bodies and that nobody was allowed to mess with us. Right. And that if somebody messed with your brother or your sister, you were allowed to fight them. If you, like you were your own person and nobody could hurt you. Or, like they taught me all the great stuff that I needed to know. They just bombed the sex talk. And yeah, so you're like, yeah. screw this. I'm getting a PhD and I'm going to go and talk about this in front of thousands and thousands of people. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit more complicated than that. But, um, and, and then what actually what happened in, in the background of all that. So I'm secretly hoarding all the sex books I can find. Um, and this is in the, like, this is the seventies and the eighties. So there is no internet. There is oh, no, yeah. right. right. Like it's really like stealing uncle Bob's playboy. Right. You know, because that's the only way to get this. Victoria's Secret catalogs are not even a thing yet. This is, you know, we talk about food deserts. This is a porn desert. Yes. Yes. In rural New York State. Yeah. But but, but still, there are enough books and there are enough stuff, and I'm learning stuff. And then my kid brother, um, who has hemophilia, which has just been sort of in the background of our family, we've got this super confident, like, my dad is a former MP. He's a police chief. Like we are the get it done, make a plan, work the plan family. My brother who has hemophilia gets HIV and then AIDS. And, and so, um, and this is in, we found out he was infected in 1985. But for, for the historical contact for folks who aren't, um, in, who don't know about this, um, 1985 was a really scary time in terms of HIV. It was, it was our first global pandemic, right? Right. And, and people were pretty hysterical. Right, right. Kids with hemophilia who had AIDS, Ryan White was the most famous, are um, being kicked from their schools. Uh, there were three brothers in Florida with hemophilia whose houses were burned down when they tried to go to school. So my family in this tiny little town of 2,000 people and one traffic light in Cooperstown says, we're just not going to tell anyone. Right. Right. They started taking my brother to um, New York city for AIDS care because there's nothing in our area and to bring him to the local hospital would be an equivalent to out him. And, and so that is what we do. So for my entire high school career, I knew that my brother had hemophilia and had HIV and nobody knew what that meant, but we could also never talk about it. Mm. And I went off to college and that's how it was. Um, and I, I was pre-law. I wanted to be the first female chief justice of the Supreme Court. We still don't have one, by the way. Right. 35 years later, still not there. This was 1987. I wanted oh. to be the female chief justice of the Supreme Court. I'm, yeah, I'm steamed too, Audra. We're still uh, waiting for you. <laughs> like called me in a different direction yes. <laughs> I went off to college to do that I was going to be pre-law I was going to be a lawyer I was going to be a justice I was going to fight for you know um and my brother stayed home in high school junior high at that point and then later in high school hiding the fact that he was HIV positive um mm. until he got too sick right yeah um, and when he was a senior in high school he got his first case-defining illness. We used to do that, remember, HIV positive, mm -hmm. and there were case-defining illnesses, and then you had a, you were full-blown AIDS, like, right. Um, yeah, the way we label disease is really right. bad. Ugh. Maybe a whole other talk. Oh, yes, mm, yeah. for sure. Right, right? Like, you know, 
So then he was full blown. And once he was full blown, it was one to two years was the, was the diagnosis. He had just, it was November of his senior year in high school. He just started. So don't bother to apply to college. Um, I, I, I dropped out of college. I came home. He was like, decided that keeping it a secret didn't make any sense. Like, you know, having people be mad at you wasn't the worst thing in the world anymore. Losing friends wasn't. Um, so he was a Boy Scout and decided to do this Eagle Scout project talking about AIDS. And I was his big sister. So I was like, oh, I'm a college dropout. I can tag along and talk about AIDS. Um, and we started speaking together. Um, and so by the time that you and I met, or we met, because Justin was in grad school too with you, I had been doing that for almost a decade. Oh, wow. And um, my brother had just died. Like, he, he died the May I started grad school. Mm. I didn't know it was that recent to you starting oh, grad school. Yeah. I look back on those years and think, wow, that's amazing because I remember just barely holding it together. Like being, mm. having a sense of myself as so broken. Mm. Um, and, oh, and, wow. and again, <laughs> right? Like that really just overwhelming grief and yeah. we need to hold this together. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it, it strikes me too when you say that, you know, I'm really impacted because I, I hear that in you from the beginning, from childhood to some degree, you know, and that you, you, you've been holding so much together throughout your life. And that's what brings you to plan a marriage at 22 and plan it out and plan exactly how the kids are going to go. You know, it's, um, oh, it's just- I think when tragedy strikes like this, we can hold it together by avoiding and repressing and ignoring and like, I'm just going to hold it together. I don't want to break. I don't, you know, or I can hold it together by diving straight into this thing by like walking straight towards it. And I feel like that's what we've done with childhood cancer. I'm just like, and then that's exactly what you did is like, I'm, I'm going straight into that fire. Yeah. Oh, that's powerful. Yeah, that is my memory of of meeting you is, uh, you know, I think that that was one thing that was so impactful to me is that your openness, vulnerability, presence, um, being able to speak about your experience, being able to speak about Henry, being able to, it wasn't uh, a secret part of your life. It was a part, a part of your life that felt very incorporated in your life um, and in who you are. Uh, and 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 still very much does you know it's a really really powerful journey how so when your when your brother was diagnosed um he must have been very young initially with hemophilia i mean is that something that's typically diagnosed early in childhood well this is again um now it would be almost definitely this was he okay. was born in 73 so actually the first um Tentative diagnosis was leukemia because he presented oh, as wow. a yeah. toddler crawling with bruising and bleeding gums, right? Lumps, and so, um, so we had to go. My, my parents were in the service in Fort Gordon, Georgia, and there was nobody there who could who could diagnose this little this little toddler who was bleeding. So they sent us to the CDC in Atlanta and my parents brought us there. I remember this is one of my earliest memories because my brother was one and a half and I was about five and a half. Um, and they brought us to the CDC 
And they had ruled it down to leukemia, which was terrible, right? Because this is 1974. Right. It's right? terminal at that it's point. Death, yeah. 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 So, right, toddlers with leukemia. Yep. Right. Um, and, 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 and my parents are not educated. They're, I'm five, they're 25-year-old kids in the service. Right. right, right. So what they know is their kids probably got leukemia, and if he's got leukemia, he's going to die. And instead, it turns out it's not leukemia. It's this other thing, hemophilia, which we have never heard of and we know nothing about. Um, so, and it turns out it's just this blood disease. And if the kid gets hurt, you can give them lots of other people's blood and they'll stop bleeding. Transfusions. Right. And at this point, there's no Facebook support groups, no mm -hmm. online chats. There's none of this. Your parents are going it alone with a kid with a rare diagnosis that seems to be treatable if you have access to blood transfusions. And if you dive in and teach yourself everything you can, it isn't an accident that I decided I could plan a marriage at 22. Yes. <laughs> like I, I, as a child, I was taught how to do IV blood transfusions at age 10 because 10 was, again, we were Catholic. And seven was old enough to get your ears pierced because that was like, you know, first communion. So 10 seemed like good enough for IV therapy. Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the math yeah. works out. Yeah. Jenna, you're a woman now. Here's the yes. IV. Yes. Oh yes. And God. caregiver. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Jenna, um, to bring us up to the present, how would you describe the work you do right now? Like, how, you know, you're at a dinner party, like, uh, how do you describe it? It depends. If I if I come to your dinner party, yeah, I will tell people um, that I teach gender and sexuality. That I do research about gender and sexuality, typically on stigmatized or minoritized um, groups or sexualities. Um, so, like, I do a lot of work with sexual violence um, with women around the world. I do a lot of stuff with the LGBTQ plus community. Um, that's what I do. But and, if and it's I, a really bad dinner party, what, what do you say? Right. If, if, if it's my um, uber conservative cousin's dinner party, yeah. I'm a health professor. Yeah. Yeah. I teach people how to be healthy. Yeah. And I do Got work it. mostly with women's health um, around the world. Lately, I've been working a lot in Haiti and in India. And oh, look at the time. <laughs> exactly exactly all right so this is the part in the conversation where i want to start getting into stuff where i think a lot of listeners uh parent listeners can start to put some things into action so you know how to how to talk to our kids about gender and sexuality how to think about these these things um, but before we do, I'm imagining that there are some parents out there uh, who come from families like mine, where uh, yeah, the the whole sex talk was it was just this awkward, terrible thing, and you know, the less we can talk about this, the better. Let's just you know, let's just ignore it. Uh, how can we kind of lower the temperature before we get into talking about these things? That is the perfect. Because think about how we frame this, right? Like the talk, which conveys to people, think about this, sometime in your childhood, we're going to have a conversation in which I will tell you everything you need to know <laughs> about the physical and emotional aspects of sex and intimacy. 
And there's an idea of like a forbidden knowledge too, and right? We yep. will never speak of this again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? You imagine if we approach table manners like that? Right, right. Like it's going to be a dinner in sixth grade, and we will teach you all the silverware and how to use your wine glass. And if you don't get it, you're going to be a social failure forever because <laughs> you won't know what a shrimp fork does. Right, oh right. In reality, we start teaching our kids about sexuality and table manners in infancy, right? Mm. Like as soon as our kids start eating solid food, we say, oh, no, you don't spit it back at mommy. That's not nice, right? When we, when we change our kids' diapers, when we label body parts, when we say, oh, no, you don't take stuff from your diaper and you don't touch your, and we give that thing a name. Mm-hmm. We are, so, so again, getting back to my family where we didn't talk about this. The names that we had for things that were covered by diapers or underpants was bottom. Front or back, boy or girl, it was all your bottom. You did not touch your bottom. You kept your bottom covered. Nobody got to see your bottom except you or your doctor. Wow. Yeah. Whoever was giving you a bath, right? That, That sends a really significant message in a family where everything else has a name. Hmm. So what I'm hearing is that uh, we can lower the temperature by just um, understanding that whether we like it or not, we've been having the talk ever since (laughs) (laughs) the beginning. A a less risky example. When I was in junior high, all my friends started wearing makeup and I really, really wanted to wear makeup. I didn't go to my mom and say, hey, mom, what do you think about me as a seventh grader wearing makeup? Because in seventh grade, I knew exactly what my mom thought about that. Yeah. Right? I yeah. had 12 years of watching her in the mall go, I don't know who that person thinks she is, but she just looks so much prettier if she wash all that gunk off her face. Oh, right. Oh, right, right. I had heard yeah. that yeah. times before I ever considered having the makeup conversation with my mom. So, right? So, I just bought friends. You know, I borrowed friends' makeup and hid it in my lunch bag because I knew that she would say the wrong thing. You know, I, I didn't have to ask what she thought. She had already told me what she thought over and over again. And it's okay for her to do that, right? It is okay for us as parents to have our values around things like what makeup is appropriate or what clothes are appropriate or what age kids should be allowed to do certain things with their friends. Like, that's why we got elected parents, Right. That's our, not, not only are we allowed to do that, it's our responsibility. To mm. Do that. Mm. But ideally, we communicate with our kids about what those rules are and what our expectations are. Um, explicitly, rather than just letting them guess based on how they see our behavior. Yeah, it's, it's such an amazing point. They're picking up on everything. From all the conversations we're having that are indirect, that we don't realize that we're having, all of the sharing um, within the family unit and without, and all of our judgments, everything that that we're sharing, and then very often just never having a direct conversation. Right. And and again, I think as parents, one one of the things I hate most about talking about the talk is if I'm a parent who's nervous or anxious about that, right? If I don't want to get, which I suspect most parents are right? I am sometimes nervous about important talks I have with my kids because they're high stakes and I love my kids and I don't want to mess it up. Mm. Right, right. That's so important. But if I'm nervous about it and I think it's one talk and it's 
I'm the one teaching my kids about sex, I can put it off because I allow myself to believe that everybody else isn't teaching my kids about sex. Mm. And the messages. So my, my oldest kid, Tori, um, came out to us pretty early in junior high. Um, actually, in, in middle school, in sixth grade. I suspected for most of Tori's life that Tori liked girls. Tori had a crush on this adorable little girl in kindergarten. I just always knew, right? But when Tori entered middle school, Tori hadn't had a conversation about that with us. So I got this book, a fantasy book, uh, Mercedes Lackey's, the Voldemort series. She still writes them. Um, And it has same-sex characters in it, just as part of the canon. It's not a sexual book, but it's just a fantasy series where sometimes boys have boyfriends and sometimes girls have girlfriends while they're riding magic horses and saving the world. Yes. (laughs) Right, yeah. And so I, I, and, and Tori was at that age in middle school. She's reading a lot of fantasy. I just say, hey, here's this really good series I'm reading because I want to give a positive role model to my kid who I'm pretty sure is queer. But she's not bringing up the conversation. And at this point in my life, I don't feel like I can say, hey, just want to remind you, even if you were gay, but no matter what, I'm always going to love you. Like I'm telling her that enough anyway, right? Right. Tori reads the first book, loves it, decides in her 11-year-old brain that I can't possibly know what is actually in this book. Oh, wow. And snakes, this is when we're living in Bancroft Hall. We knew you guys at this point. Remember Tori? Yeah. Tori sneaks on the subway by herself down to the Barnes & Noble at 70th Street to buy the second book in the series because she doesn't want to ask for it because she's afraid we might read it and find out there are gay characters. Oh my gosh. Because despite the fact that I am studying what I am. Yes, like, do you know what I do every day? (laughs) All of her friends and everybody else around her and all the messages she's getting from society are, you can't let your parents know you might be gay because they will hate you. Right, right. right. So no matter how... How open you are and supportive you've been, those messages and narratives just present in society and in our culture are so oppressive. Yep. People are talking to your kids about society, about sex and gender every day. All right, so you just uh, use some terms that I think we all think we know what they mean, but maybe we don't. So maybe we can get like some 101 uh, gender and sexuality from Jenna Curtis here. So what do these terms mean? So I want to know about gender. I want to know about sex and I want to know about sexuality. Are they the same thing? Are they different? Okay. So I I love the way that you said that most of us think we know. And I think I know too. And I'm going to give you the best definition that I have today. Um, I've been doing this work now for 30 years. So the way that I have defined those terms has changed really radically in that time because our understanding of what those things are have changed. So it would make sense that this would be new information for lots of folks. Um, And it's okay not to know. They, They change. And sometimes I have to ask, tell me what that is. So sex is our biology. It is a combination of our hormones, 
our chromosomes and our physical bodies, right? And in the U.S., people start talking about our sex typically before we're born, right? Some point through a pregnancy, somebody not just talking, but sometimes like exploding things in blue and pink colors, (laughs) right? right, Starting wildfires. In in the U.S., because we have lots of of technology, um, right? At some point in a pregnancy, some typically somebody will look at the fetus's genitals and say, "Do you want to know the baby's sex?" Right. Yeah. And and the people have talked it over and they've decided, or they talk it over right there and they consult and they decide, or they don't. But even if they decide, then it's it's interesting to me because people are like, no, we want to be surprised. I'm like, you're going to have to find out eventually, right? (laughs) (laughs) You're going to know sometime. You're going to know sometime. And you might still be surprised. Um, Yeah. Right? So, So at some point, either at some point in the pregnancy or when the baby is born, somebody who is a medical provider for that person and the baby is going to say, congratulations, it's a boy or a girl. Those are the two choices we give everybody, boy or girl. We've, we've, we've seen the hardware. We can tell you what the sex is. Exactly. It is based on a quick check of genitalia. Yep, that looks like a penis. Yep, that's a vulva. Only two choices. And here's, here's the good news. In the past... I would say that 90 to 95% of the time that we have gotten that right. And what I mean by getting it right is that up till now, and I'll talk about how now is different in a second, but up till now, about 90% of the time when we say, congratulations, you've got a baby boy, or congratulations, she's a little girl, we've been correct. That human has grown up and become a man or become a woman just as we predicted the day they were born. Sometimes, and this is pretty rare, probably less than 2% of all births, and some people would say as rare as one in a thousand, there are babies who are born with what we call intersex. And that means that their genitalia are somewhat ambiguous. It's hard to tell if it's a baby girl or a baby boy sometimes. Or... Sometimes babies are born intersex and their genitalia look exactly the way we think that penises and vulvas should, but what's inside is different, right? Mm -hmm. Depending on the reason that happened, sometimes babies are born intersex because of hormones that they're exposed to while they're fetuses that they're not going to be exposed to anymore. So we just need time for their bodies to change and their own hormones to take over. Sometimes those babies need surgery to bring their genitals into line with what their brains and their hormones are going to do. And sometimes those babies need to be left to grow into humans that have genitals that look different than what most people think penises or vulvas should look like, right? But that's a process of working with the child and their doctors and the parents to figure out what's best. So sex is mostly about this perceived biological uh, reality. And so, uh, but you've alluded to the fact that there is more there. There is gender there. And gender is someone's own sense of themselves as male or female or something else. So again, when we talk about sex, we have two choices typically is what most people think of. We have male or female. And now I've introduced this third option that that we don't normally talk about is intersex. Someone who has the chromosomes, the hormones, 
or the physical genitals of both male and female sex, right? So that's sex. There's, there's really three things that people can be with regard to sex. Most people only know about two. With gender, there's an entire spectrum. We used to think that people could either be boys or girls and that sex, our, our physicality, our biology, had to correspond with our gender, our sense of ourselves as men or women or something else. Now we understand that sex and gender are separate. For most people, they are aligned. 90% of people will grow up feel, who have already been born will grow up feeling in their heads like exactly what the doctor or midwife said that morning, they slapped them on the butt, right? Congratulations, you're a little baby girl, you're a little baby boy. Five to 10% of people have a sense of themselves as something other than that, right? Some of them have a very clear sense, no, I'm not a little girl, I'm a boy. No, I'm not a man, I'm a woman. Other people, don't feel like those, what we call gender boxes, maybe, right? Like that box of here's all the things men should be or here's all the things women should be. Actually, lots of people feel that way. Um, some people feel that their gender box or their gender label is such a bad fit that they want something else, right? But the other gender label isn't a better fit. Um, people in this non-binary state not male, not female, are still creating language to talk about that. Some people call that genderqueer. Some people call that non-binary, right? So what we do when we talk about people whose sense of themselves, whose gender is different than the sex that they were assigned at birth based on their genitals, we call those people transgender or people who are non-binary, TGNB for short, if I have to type it out a lot. We call everyone else, the 90% of people whose sex assigned at birth corresponds with or matches their gender identity, their sense of themselves as male or female, cisgender, meaning same gender. Can I just like observe for a moment that that was just the most succinct, beautiful, oh. Oh, simplified... Yeah educational opportunity I've had to to explore sex and gender like maybe ever and Jenna one thing I love 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 that you said is speaking of how things are changing and have changed because of course things change and and we learn and we grow and we change and one of the worst things that we see anyway working in health and wellness and healthcare is when someone comes up with a theory in 1965 and because they did, they got to stick to it. I mean, it's really destructive. And so to be, to honor the movement and change and growth and learning, it's such a beautiful thing. It's, I think it's probably hard to do in academia because we want to stick with, it's naturally pretty conservative. We want to stick with the things that were written before. (laughs) Well, and before we do anything, we have to form a committee to explore it. So, you know, now that we've gotten the glacier here, you're saying you want to turn it and move it where? Right. Well, so there's a there's a historical change, um, but I, I wonder if you can talk br- briefly. What what I've learned is that there's also just 
super individual factor. So learning as, you know, teaching on a university campus, you have to ask somebody, how would you like to be, you know, how would you like to be addressed? And so can you, can you speak about that aspect? So when I, when I started my explanation, I said, so before people who are already born, right. And I talked about how, you know, when we're talking about people who were born in the past, probably 90 to 95% of the time we got sex assigned at birth correct. Most people were the gender, the same gender as their sex assigned at birth. For reasons that we're not exactly sure that we completely understand, there are many more transgender and genderqueer people below the age of 30 to 40 than there are above it. Probably twice as many. Oh, I didn't know the numbers. Okay. Yes. So now on your campus and my campus, we have twice as many students, probably if we reflect national trends, I know my campus does, we have twice as many students who identify as trans or genderqueer than we ever have before. And we don't think we're capturing the true picture of that because one, our population is still figuring themselves out. And two, um, we think that the way that students are starting to are starting to think about talking about gender identity is different. So let me add a fourth term. So we talked about sex. We talked about gender. We'll get to sexuality, I promise. But now I want to talk about gender identity um, and gender expression. So gender is somebody's a male or a female. And our identity is how we think of ourselves that way, right? Um, Do I think of myself as a girly girl? Do I think of myself as a strong woman? Do I think of myself as a hard guy who can cry and be sent, right? Like that's all gender identity. How do we think of ourselves and our gender, right? I think of myself as a smart, strong woman. Um, and, And in that context, smart and strong have a feminine flavor to them, right? Like I am smart the way that women are smart, there's some strategy and there's some social skill involved there. And it's not just about like blinding ego, right? Um, and I'm strong the way that women are strong. Again, getting allies and right. So, so that's all gender identity. Um, and that's our, our sense of ourselves in our head that develops over the course of our lives. What kind of man or woman or person are we related to our gender? Our gender expression is how we portray that on the outside, right? Am I wearing a dress? Am I wearing makeup? Um, Because we're doing this call, I put on makeup. I put on foundation. (laughs) Justin keeps forgetting to tell people Uh, that we're not. Well, yeah. So (laughs) we are, we are, we are not necessarily using the video, but we may use clips. Okay. All right. All right. Well, I haven't seen me in 50 years. I said to Todd, I said, if you saw this face, would you be like, wow, Jenna's really. Yeah. Right. So my, my foundation, my mascara, Mm -hmm. the lipstick, the hair is all part of my gender expression, how I portray myself as a woman on the outside world. Yesterday I was in sweatpants and a ponytail. My gender identity wasn't the same, was, is the same. I was still the same smart, strong woman today that I was yesterday. Today I'm just feminine up a little bit to impress you guys, right? We don't know if, our students' gender is changing, right? Or their gender expression, their their willingness to be seen as androgynous or genderqueer, 
their willingness to demand, as, as you suggested, Justin, that we ask them about their pronouns because some of our students or some of our children, instead of just wanting to be he or she or to be pronouned um, based on the sex that they were assigned at birth, want to be able to tell you what their pronouns are. No, my pronouns are she, even though you think I'm a boy. Or no, my pronouns are they, even though you think mm -hmm. I look like a girl, right? Again, people who are transgender and genderqueer are still evolving their own language around this. Um, so there are also what we call neo-pronouns. People are coming up with other pronouns like Z, Z, or Zim instead of she, her, hers. Or right. She, so yeah. there's, there's this historical change. And then I'm like visually seeing like, then there's just this individual context, you know, and, and we're still figuring that out. And, and that's why like five years from now, when we have, you know, the 200th anniversary of this, or, you know, I'll be able to have a much better sense of why we have more transgender and gender queers, adolescents and young adults than ever before. And are we going to continue to see that? My guess is that we're going to see something over the next 10 years very similar to what we saw after the gay rights movement in the 60s through the 70s and 80s. It's not probably that more people have same-sex attraction now than did before. It's probably that now that we have marriage equity, now that we have civil rights, people who experience that feel comfortable marrying the person they love because they're not going to risk getting fired from their job or losing their health, right? We have throughout history, right? Like if you talk to civil war experts, they will tell you stories of soldiers who were killed. And then when they buried them, we discovered they were really secretly women pretending to be men. Well, maybe, because that's the language we had back then, but maybe they were people who experienced themselves as men who went off to fight for their country, even though they had moments. Yeah. Right? We have always had people whose gender identity has been outside the binary in all cultures that we've studied around the world. We have always had people whose sexual attraction was outside the, you should be attracted to someone of the other sex. Jenna, I, real, real quick, do you know, do you have any statistics on the uh, rise in transgender parents? I mean, has this, has this tracked as well for parents? We are just now starting to ask hmm. questions about gender identity um, related to respondents in surveys. And like there was huge fights around the census and all of these things. And it's really fascinating for me as a, as a health educator because we're always fighting um, in, in all these national data collection efforts because people are saying that, you know, our data collections for sexual health matters are too sexually explicit. Um, and it's just, just wow. really weird. Too sexually explicit? Out. It's too much yes. knowledge. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, for instance, um, we only have um, data about kids and explicit certain specific sexual behaviors for very recently because before we would only ask children if they were sexually active, but we wouldn't define what that meant. Okay. Mm. Yes. Right? Because, because then that would I was going to say, ideas, is that going to plant like, a seed? Is that what the problem is? That's what they thought. So, <laughs> you know, the census walking, made me do it. <laughs> You're like walking into your house saying, have you done anything to <laughs> Right? <laughs> no! Right, right. And then on so, 
asking, did you eat any of the cookies that I said? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then on the other side of the coin, you likely have people saying, well, you don't have data. <laughs> right, exactly. So what we know about queer families is that we have more people identifying as LGBTQ plus as parents than ever before. And the um, willingness of physicians to work oh, with wow. families yeah. around fertility and other needs related to um, queer and gender queer parenting. So, oh, so there's another word. I, I, I use the word queer. Yes, to find um, that. Which, yes, in in the LGBT, so let me talk about that too. L is lesbian, right? And we think of lesbian as people, women, um, who are attracted to other women. And sexual attraction, when we talk about sexual attraction, is about gender, right? So it doesn't matter if one of the women who's attracted to another woman has a penis. It is all about, do they identify as women? Um, So lesbians are women who are attracted to women, bisexual people. And we're going to have to change this alphabet because, again, this is things are Mm -hmm. exploding in the sexuality world right now. We invented the term bisexual and really popularized it in the 70s with the idea that there were two sets and some people were attracted to both of them. Now that we understand that there are more than two genders that people can be attracted to, we think of bisexual people as people who are attracted to two or more genders. More fluid. So L, right. So L is lesbian, G is gay, and we're attracted to other men. E is bisexual, people who are attracted to two or more genders, and P is transgender somebody whose gender identity doesn't meet their sex or match their sex assigned at birth. Now, because people do, right? Like I I just said, I think of myself as a strong, smart woman. I've created my own identity label. People have done the same thing for their sexual orientation. Intersex people have said, hey, we want to be included in the LGBT umbrella. LGBT, okay, we'll put an I in there, right? Uh, Two-spirited people. In Native traditions, people whose gender wasn't in the binary were sometimes identified as having two-spirits. I didn't know that. Right? Two-spirited people said, hey, we want to be in the umbrella. Transgendered people were already there, said, oh, we have a T, right? So um, pansexual people, people said, well, I used to think I was bisexual, but now I know that I'm attracted to men and women and sort of Femi boys and sort of really strong women with short crew cut hairs. And I'd, I'm pansexual, right? So now we have LGBTQ, A or asexual people who said, eh, I don't really feel like I'm attracted to anybody very much, regardless of their gender. P for pansexual and Q for the word queer which we use in two ways. Some people have queer as an identity and they say, I'm not straight, but I'm not, none of those other labels really work for me. I'm queer. I'm beyond the typical binary of how we think about sexuality so or queer gender. queer is another way of saying like, don't box me in. So queer is, there's two things. So what queer is an identity label? People who, um, whose sexual orientation or gender identity doesn't align with any of the labels they have, often identify as queer. 
maybe somebody, a woman who is largely attracted to other women, but occasionally will date men. Or um, a man who is attracted to men and trans women, right? Like there's, there's just less. So queer is sort of outside. The, so another way, if we're, if we're talking about kinky sex, maybe someday we'll adopt that podcast. Oh, we will. Really, we're going to have right? you back on. And, yeah, yeah. It's got to be recurring. Yeah. But when you talk about kink with people, people will talk about kink versus vanilla sex, right? And vanilla is sort of, the missionary in the dark with the lights on and the blankets up to your chin, the way we imagine our grandparents had <laughs> yeah. sex. That is not how they had sex, but that's what we think. That's right? what we want. They think. were vanilla. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> what I prefer to think. Yes. <laughs> Kink is everything that's not vanilla, you know, and then whether it's spanking or role play or whatever, it's just not the vanilla missionary style. Queer is like that for sexual orientation and gender identity. It's this, big umbrella as an identity and a signifier that someone's sexual orientation or gender identity isn't the regular old vanilla. No offense to anybody who's listening. I believe that whatever someone's sexual orientation or gender identity is, that's awesome, right? But it isn't the regular old vanilla, straight or cisgender. So people will use queer as an identity. Those of us who study and research sexuality and gender, use queer as a descriptor for those studies, like queer studies and gender studies, studies of sexuality and sexual orientation. We also, and here's one of my favorite ways to use this word, use the word queer as a verb to talk about ways that we can kind of subvert the standard narrative, especially around sex or gender or race. So, for instance, one of the things I suggest to my students when I'm talking to them about their sexual behaviors is that they queer the dating narrative, that they think about the sort of oh, story they have about who's supposed to do what and where, and think about how would they construct a date if they didn't have these rules in their head about what it's mm. supposed to be, right? Like, what would you do if you didn't think that because you're the boy, you have to do these things? Or what would you do if you didn't think that because you're the girl, you have to sit and wait to see what the boy wants to do? Oh my gosh, I love it. Mm. Mm. I wish I had well, your class. Yeah, Oh, right. Well, I, I, it, and that's why we have Jen on the show. So we can get a little piece of oh, I, we, magic. And, and we need to so, keep it going. I mean, so, it's really amazing. Hey, if you like what we're doing here at the Family Thrive Podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast player, share it with other parents in your life, and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. The Family Thrive is a movement, not a moment, so let's spread the love. All right, so um, I imagine new parents, you know, let's, let's say... I'm a new parent, you know, we, like we just had a brand new baby and uh, like, do I need to know about this stuff yet? Or can I just push this off till puberty? You know, can I come back to you in 12 or 13 years? So I'm going to tell you the same thing your pediatrician is going to tell you as a new parent. Listen to your baby, right? I remember when I was a new parent, I was so, again, I was, I was 23 as a new parent. My, I, I had my first kid two weeks before my 24th birthday. That plan we made at 22, we just stuck to it, 
right? And I was so scared I was going to mess it up. Like, how will I know if the baby's hungry? How will I know if the baby needs to be? And the pediatrician said, listen to your baby, right? When your baby cries, pick him up and see if he needs to be fed. See if the baby wants to be changed. As a new parent, you can absolutely bring your baby home, have the gender reveal party if that's what you need to do, right? If that is your family's tradition and your parents or godparents or whoever are going to be heartbroken if that doesn't happen. It will not make people in the trans community happy. And for the sake of family harmony, do what you need to do. Please just don't put it on everybody's Facebook. Um, and, and right, like it's okay because 90% of the time your pediatrician, your obstetrician is going to be right. If when that child is two or three and they say, mommy, I'm not a boy, I'm a girl. Listen to them. I don't need you to go out and get them hormones or do anything else. You might mention it to the pediatrician because lots of kids will do that. Most of them will still be cisgender 90% of the time we get it right. But right now, five to 10% of kids, we say they're one gender and they're not. And what I'm asking sounds really revolutionary, except that it's not, right? We indulge our kids and our toddler all the time. So, so Zach, you just saw, um, I think this was before you met him, but when Zach was three, the movie Babe the Pig oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. came out, right? Zach wanted to be Babe the Pig. He didn't want to be the farmer. He wanted to grow up to be a pig. He watched the movie every day. And for about a year when he was three, anytime he, I would say, oh, you're such a good little boy. He would say, I'm not a boy, mommy, I'm a pig. And so I got in the habit of saying, okay, come on, piggy, it's time for bed. Okay, little pig, I love you so much, right? I remember one time in the grocery store, I got this bizarre look from a woman because she heard me saying to my toddler, you're the best little piggy ever. I didn't say, you can't be a pig because humans can only grow into humans. Right, you know, right. Children can yeah. only be humans. Yeah. Right? And here's the thing. My Little boy cannot grow up to be a pig. He could possibly someday be my daughter. Probably not. Most kids are not trans. But when kids are, we don't tend to know that they are until they tell us. And when they tell us, we need to listen mm. to them. Because here is the thing. Um, and I think it goes back to that conversation we had in the beginning about this is not the journey I plan to be on, right? Like you did not sign up to be cancer parents, right? You did not say we feel really great, really confident in our family and our marriage and our parenting, and we are ready for this journey. Pick right. us. Yep. This was the journey you were put on and you get to step up and do what you're doing or you get to not, but this is going to still be your journey. You have to get and on this And as we said at the beginning, you aren't going to know what to do, but if you step forth in love and authenticity and honesty, you're going to be going in the right direction. You get direction. to choose that response. Right. And I would argue that for lots of parents, for parents whose children have critical illnesses, often we don't have good evidence as to what the best course right. of action is, right? Like one of the horrible things I experienced, um, one of my children was critically ill um, during their childhood often. 
And right, like those hard choices you have to make as a parent where, you know, a year from now or five years from now, or maybe when the kid's grown, you're going to have an answer of, was this the right choice? But now you just have to listen to the experts or listen to your faith or listen to and make that choice. For transgender parents, for the parents of trans and gender queer kids, we have overwhelming evidence that listening to your child, allowing your child to express themselves as their gender identity is life-saving. Mm. Oh, it's incredible. So there's a roadmap. There is a roadmap. And, and it doesn't, like, I can't tell you, take the highway or take the country roads. I have to say, I can tell you, you need to get to a place where your child feels loved and accepted for who they are. So Jenna, this is like uh, all parenting for everything always. (laughs) (laughs) And like how you accept that and how you write, like your kid picks a person that you're not, who's not your favorite. Your kid (laughs) studying a field of study and you want to be a doctor. Being a parent is finding a way to be, but here's the thing. If you force your kid to be a doctor, Hmm. they might be a miserable doctor and they might write novels on the side. Like we have a whole bunch of, you know, all sorts of best-selling novelists who are really doctors. Michael Crichton has his MD, right? (laughs) Right, right. If your kid tells you that they are trans and you don't believe them and you make them pretend to not be trans, Hmm. you are threatening their life. Hmm. Wow. Like, yeah. Transgender is not a disease. It is not an illness. It is not a life threat. Being a trans kid and trying to pretend you're not is life threatening. Mm. You know, I it's teach. Powerful. I teach this as suicide prevention. God, yeah. Oh, I, oh that you. is incredible. I mean, I think we need to like really put a pin in that and make a note that not supporting your child in being who they are, expressing who they are, and being able to live their lives as who they are and who they want to be is life-threatening. And and the hard thing about parenting is we all have visions of who we want our kids to be, right? I have had kids date people I didn't like. I have had kids drop out of college. I have had kids make all sorts of choices that I would not have voted for in their adolescent and adult lives. And I have their entire lives to help them grow into the kind of person they're meant to be and to push towards the kind of person I'd like them to be. Right. Things that will protect them, things that will keep them here, things that will keep that dialogue open so I can keep giving them guidance. Mm. That's what I prioritize. Beautiful. So what I'm hearing is that it's not going to be damaging to put the girl the girl you know she's born we identify as a girl in birth you put her in pink clothes you put the boy in blue clothes that's not going to be necessarily the most damaging thing ever you're you're sending a message certainly and there is communication happening here but it's not the end of the world that what we need to do is because you one thing that i thought was really powerful you're acknowledging family dynamics and culture and all of the other rich things going on. But when the child expresses who they are, you listen and take that seriously. Yes. The same way that if my child said, mom, actually Tori did my, my oldest kid 
um, went to college at 16 and super bright and was getting a lot of college notices. And my college really heavily recruited Corey. And, and I was kind of gently like, wouldn't that be so cool? And we can, we can commute together. And finally, Tori turned to me and said, Mom, mm. every time you talk about me going to your college, I throw up a little in the back of my throat. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Tori wow. is not the beat around the bush kid, right? <laughs> right. Mom, this is not my path. <sighs> Listen. Yeah. yeah. Right? Like, I thought it would be great. We could have had lunch together every day for four years. Was not Tori's path. No. Oh. All right. So um, we are <clears throat> coming up against time here. So I, what is uh, coming up for me first is that we absolutely have to have you back on because there's like five questions here that, that I like absolutely want <laughs> answered. And so we're going to have to have hey, you back. Promise the kink session. Oh my God. Have- there's, it's like, come on. Oh, it's going to be awesome. So I- we're going to have you back. But uh, one question before I get into the three hot, like uh, quick ones that we throw everybody um because uh, it's just like standing out to me maybe because uh we have a teenager w- w- dating how early is too early okay so justin this is the price of admission right here this is the same answer for anything your kid tells you about sex and relationships um my kid comes to me and says in kindergarten and says, mom, Mahogany and I are dating, right? I say, great, what does that look like, mm-hmm. right? Because here's the thing I know. My kid thought, Tori thought that Tori and Mahogany were dating in kindergarten, right? And in kindergarten, dating is I sit next to you on the school bus and we sit together at lunch, right? And, and the reason I want to know what, so first of all, it's contextual, but then the other re- thing that that question gives me is it allows me that there is a red flag there for me as a parent, I get to say, wait a minute about this part, right? So when Tori says I'm dating mahogany and I say, what does dating look like? Tori says, we sit together on the bus every day and Mahogany's not allowed to talk to anybody else. <laughs> I want to say, I love that you guys are sitting on the bus today. I love sitting next to your dad on the bus. That's one of my favorite things. And I think not letting the person you're dating talk to them <laughs> make them sad. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and similarly, if my kid comes and says, you know, mom, I'm going all the way. Mm. Let's talk about that. Mm. What does that look like? Right. You know, one, one of my kids, adult kids just came to me with a really serious relationship, you know, news. Here's this. And I said, well, you know, tell me. Awesome. Congratulations. What do you think that's going to look like? Mm. Right. Like, what, you know, you and your person have obviously talked about this. You've thought about this a lot. What does that look like for you? How's your relationship going to be now? What do you think this means? You know, so your teenage kid comes and says, dad, I'm dating my best friend, my, this kid who's been in your house for dinner a million times and you didn't even know they were checking your kid out. (laughs) Like that's some messed up stuff right there. Right. Mm. Like all potential dates should have to claim their intentions. You start looking at your kid's best friends, like, (laughs) right. So if your kid comes and says, dad, I'm dating this person, you know, that's awesome. What does that look like for you? You know, you guys are friends and how does the friendship different or, Oh, that's great. This isn't somebody we've met before. Talk to me about your connection with them, right? Oh, I love it. I'm getting, 
this opening, Jenna, it's just like this beautiful, beautiful, powerful opening in an, in, in an open invitation to connect and converse as opposed to the typical closing, clamping, controlling. Yeah. Over my dead body. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and, and because again, right. And, and then the other one I use a lot with, I use a lot of my adolescents and still my kids. Still, you make great choices. I know your kids make great choices. I see on social media, all the fabulous things they do. Think about how much better your conversations about with your adolescent kids go around dating and all those things. If they know that you think they make good choices and you respect their choices and they know your family values, mm. right? Like people think that because I do this work that I'm, and people who know me and know my politics and everything else think that I'm like this uber liberal mother. You know, I sat down with both of my kids when they were in high school and told them that I'd rather they weren't sexually active in high school. Because in my experience, people who have sex in high school often do it for really bad reasons. In adulthood, they look back on it and they regret it. Right. I said, you know, I think most high school students probably aren't, and in most high school relationships, probably aren't ready for sex. And no matter what, I'm always going to love you. I'm always going to support you. And as your mom, here's what I want for you. Oh man. So the, oh gosh. So this opens up so many other questions for me. I, all right. So we definitely have to have you back on because I, I like, I want to dig into this because there's so much more like, okay, well then what if they're like, thanks for the advice, mom, but you know, this is what I want to do. Um, I did not tell you, Justin, that either of my children followed me. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing. And, and I, don't, I don't talk about my kids' sexual behaviors publicly any more than I would my own. But over the course of, you know, I've got an almost 30-year-old and a 25-year-old now. Over the course of their adult lives and relationships, they have done things that I have disagreed with. They did not always follow my firm guidelines or parental rules. And every time they have gotten into trouble or they have had a question or a relationship problem or a pregnancy scare or all the sorts of things that happen around sexuality, I have been one of the first people that they have come to Mm. because I'm an expert, but also because I'm their parent. Yeah. The communication was open. It was always open. And, and they knew that I would disagree. Sometimes I have my own values and high expectations for my kids but I'm never going to shame them and I'm never going to tell them that they're not allowed as young adults or adults to make their own choices in their lives. Mm. You know, I'll respectfully tell them that I disagree sometimes with choices, but, but they get to Zach when he turned 18 um, told us that he was now thinking of us as an advisory council. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <it>. yeah. <laughs> Advise. Uh, the effect of this is, is that neither of my children have a hard time telling me what they actually think. Yes, yes. Oh, but know. the relationship is... Uh, okay. It, you know what? I just, I have to reflect just a couple of things. Like, I'm really, really struck by, I think, I think what I feel like I'm hearing and getting a feel for, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I want to check in on this, is that when you talk about your family values, I have to think respect is a core one. Very much so. I feel respect like. Yes. So, I, so, I, as an, so we are friends and you get to be your, have your own life. My children are adults. They get to live their own life. That's all respect. And honesty is as someone who cares for you and loves you, I also have an obligation to give you my best feedback and my best advice, even if I don't agree. So 
the respect can sometimes be hand off. I think with honesty, it's sort of yes. Because with parenting too, you know, and it, more so than with friends, I don't. Oh, I like as a relationship person, I have such a rule about not offering unsolicited relationship mm-hmm, advice mm-hmm. to anyone. And and I think the um, honesty part is is something that gets negotiated in relationships and close friendships and family because you do have an obligation. Um, but especially with your kids as they're young adults and adolescents help them navigate this really complicated thing. Mm, beautiful. All right. So beautiful. one more thing before the three things, yeah. please. I know I'm so sorry. I know we we're getting on in time and we are going to talk. I think we have to talk with you at least 10 more times. I don't know, Jenna, it's gotta be just a continuing thing. It is like, it's so uplifting of my heart and spirit. And I've learned so much. And I just wanted to express thanks to you for, going into academia, going into research for digging in and doing this work because uh, I do, weren't, weren't you and your brother on the Today Show? I often, again, the way I describe my, my job, the close friends versus the way I describe it more formally and appropriately. Um, the appropriate way I would describe my early 20s is I spent a lot of time offering myself to various media venues. Yes, you were on the world stage. And yes, and, yes and, and you were definitely a voice um, and, and it, a, you know, beautiful, passionate, articulate voice, you know, something that is deeply needed in the world. And I get the sense you could have continued on that path. You could have continued on the advocacy path. And in, in very many ways, you're still on the advocacy path. But to be able to decide that you're going to dig deeper and dig in and like stay in stay really involved with the research and be a part of this evolution of knowledge and sharing is really, really powerful. And I just wanted to appreciate that because I'm getting a, a, a just a huge sense of gratitude for you and your work. Heck yeah. Me too. Yeah. All right. So uh, the intention is set. We're going to have you back on 10 more times. Um, <laughs> all right. So the final three questions we ask everybody, if you could put a big post-it note on every parent's fridge tomorrow morning, they wake up, go into the kitchen. It's right there. What, what is it going to say? There is no test. I so often, especially early in my parenting career, I saw parenting as a series of challenges or tests that I would either pass or fail. Mm. Like childbirth was a test. And there was good ways to have birth and there were bad ways to have birth. And, and everything. parenting is this huge, long marathon. And you know, maybe decades after, after you have finished, you were able to look back and see. Um, but there's not a test. Like you show up and you do it the best you can and you get it right 60 to 80 percent of the time depending on the day and you try and keep the major screw-ups down to a couple a year beautiful and a quote that has changed the way you think or feel lately oh my gosh i have this poster over my desk at work so when i look up when anyone is walking into my office this is the first thing i see audra lord um when i dare to be powerful use my strength in the service of my vision, then it becomes less and less important whether I'm Oh, it's an amazing mm. quote. It's one of my favorites. I I right, because oh, here's the thing. Like we we talk about like, well you can't sit and do nothing else and you have to do something and we don't know the way forward. So we go, you could, you really could. There are days where you can absolutely just sit in bed with your head under the covers and eat chocolate and sob because there is so much freaking sock. 
and there isn't a single good solution. Um, and it's overwhelming to get it wrong. Like the stakes are so high sometimes. Yeah. Um, right? Like it's yep. so easy to be afraid and to be overwhelmed. Mm. And, and so that one helps me remember that I don't ever have to be brave on my own behalf. Mm. Like yep. I, I, can, I can use that power and harness it for something else and not have to be scared for myself. Beautiful. Yeah, you strike me as someone who makes your decisions out of hope, not out of fear. Not not to say you don't wrestle with fear, like we all do, but either, you don't strike me as a, a fear-based uh, decision maker. I, I, I am the, we're standing at the lake edge on February. I am the, I have to jump in because otherwise I will stand and analyze it forever. So I am constantly leaping mm. because this way fear doesn't have a chance or good judgment, right? Like oh, fear interesting. Doesn't... So just jump so that you don't have to overthink it or let fear set in. <laughs> exactly that. Uh, yeah. The judgment hardly ever sets in. That's a great strategy. All right. So this last question is about kids because for most parents and you know you're you're way past this but if you know for for parents of young kids there's a, you know an exhaustion of like oh god kids like it's just draining but they're also wonderful so we want to celebrate kids so what is your favorite thing about kids so many things i i could go on about how amazing my kids are as practically perfect humans for hours um, but I think my favorite thing about kids is how many chances they give us to get it right. Mm. Right? Like they keep, sh- like you can be snappy with your kids, you can oh, be short with your kids, you can be distracted with your kids. They still think you're one of the coolest humans on the planet. Like they still keep showing up. And for, for years or weeks, like I wrote an entire dissertation and I'm pretty sure that my kids did not see me for weeks on an end. And when I got done and came up for air, they were there with balloons. Oh, Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. So that is an incredible reflection. I feel like how they, how many chances they give us. Yes. Make mistakes over and over and over again. How forgiving they are. Yeah. Yeah. Just continue to show up. Yeah. 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 And the cool thing I can tell you as somebody who's in a very different parenting place, you know, and I have adult kids who are thinking about their own kids, is they will look back and reminisce on ridiculous things that were not important as pivotal and wonderful and affirming or fabulous. Like, you know, the stupid bodega on the corner of Amsterdam. Yes. My, my kids I love that place. And they loved stopping there. And the fact that I stopped there on the way home from school every afternoon is one of the reasons I'm like the best mom ever when really it was just, I couldn't walk 12 walks without Diet Dr. Pepper. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, so loving and so willing to give us the chance to get this right. It speaks to, it speaks to love and authenticity again, that, that, you know, children, are are living and, and often leading with love and authenticity. And so there is that open-heartedness. Yeah. Um, and it's one thing that we'll, can, we'll continue to talk about because we are super interested in talking about um, traumas and Justin is really deep into the work of emotional processing and, and things like this. And I feel like this reminder of the resilience and and love and authenticity and the the forgiving nature of kids, a kid showing up in love is like you, you haven't mom, dad, you haven't ruined it. Right. Right. It's one thing argument tonight or something. 
Yeah. Like, think about the expectation of perfection that sets in at some point in all of our lives around different things, mm-hmm. right? Like there's things that I just absolutely have to show up and nail, right? Like public speaking, this stuff and right. And then there's stuff that I'm allowed to be shitty at softball. Right. right? <laughs> and, then, and then there's imposter syndrome. And you think about kids, like they don't uh, have that. Like at what age does imposter syndrome set in? It's like middle school, maybe like depending on the kid and their environment, but like that I have to be, little kids will try shit. They'll get it wrong. They don't expect you to be good. They don't yep. expect us. Yeah. Cool people. I love it. Oh. I'm going to be sitting in that space for a while. I'm really, really enjoying thinking about little kids through that lens, through the, you know, not in like so authentic. There is no onset of imposter syndrome at that point. I mean, it's, it's delayed or later. Yeah, you grow up to be a kid. Yep. Right. Like, and, and again, if nobody tells you in three, you can, you really can. Like you can plan your whole pig life at that point. Right. What are we so afraid of? Hey, thanks for listening to the Family Thrive Podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, tell two friends, and head on over to Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to podcasts and give us a review. We're so grateful you've chosen to join us on this Family Thrive journey. 